0: My name is Roger Clark, and welcome to this episode of the Four Score and Seven Project, a production of the New Majority Foundation. We're a public charity that strives to educate the American people on the important issues of our day by exploring all angles of these issues. Ultimately, we seek resolutions that are common sense in nature and preserve and protect representative to democracy in a way that respects the dignity of all Americans. Today, our subject is public safety. And we're very fortunate to have with us uh, a person who's the best suited to address this issue, Steve Cooley. Steve, welcome. Well, thank you, Roger. Steve, uh, if you will bear with me for just uh, one moment, uh, let me just remind our audience that uh, you have a tremendous background in public safety. Uh, You have been a reserve police officer uh, for many decades. Uh, You came from a Uh, crime-fighting family. I believe your father uh, was in the FBI and you were the district attorney for the County of Los Angeles for three uh, consecutive elected terms. Uh, And in fact I think that puts you in pretty hallowed ground in all of the history of Los Angeles over the last 170 175 years. I think there's uh, only two others that uh, were elected to three terms uh, and the last two uh, were maybe a hundred years ago. So it's been quite a while. And also want to point out that you chose not to run for a fourth term. Hopefully I got that right.
1: You got everything right. Um, I was a reserve officer from 1972 through 1978. So not decades, but uh, a good seven years working LAPD, Newton Division Patrol. Uh, my father was an FBI agent. <clears throat> he retired in 1955 after joining just before World War II. Uh, he loved the bureau uh, and his job within that organization. Uh, I was actually with the DA's office for four decades. Uh, and As you mentioned, three terms, 12 years as the elected DA, uh, which is in recent hi- history, the longest serving DA uh, in Los Angeles County, having served three consecutive terms.
0: Well, you know this issue of public safety better than any of us. And uh, let's just kind of jump right off. Uh, One thing that I always think is important is let's get our terms defined. So when we say public safety, let's give a definition to that. Uh, Public safety to you would be what, sir?
1: Well, public safety can be measured, of course, by certain uh, statistics that measure crime and various uh, forms of crime in our society. The most accurate statistic uh, is or those pre- uh, prepared by the FBI, and murder rates are uh, the most <coughs> uh, accurate of all the statistics maintained by any law enforcement agency throughout the United States. So that's one benchmark. But there are other ways to measure public safety, and that is the uh, lesser crimes, and the phenomenon could be drug dealing, uh, it could be fentanyl deaths in, in contemporary society, Uh, It could be uh, new forms of crime such as uh, uh, the current uh, forms of theft that are occurring um, uh, in society which are kind of new and different. So in public safety is also a sense of the public, how do they feel uh, when they get on uh, a Metrolink train or they're downtown Los Angeles or they're going shopping late at night that are coming home from work. How do they feel? Mm -hmm. That's Mm -hmm. one way to measure public safety is how the public feels. Uh, And so I think you can look at public safety from all sorts of different angles. uh, And the way you achieve public safety is good laws and good people enforcing them. Uh, Those are the two major components of the equation. If you have good laws and lousy people enforcing them, whether it be law enforcement officers or the district attorney or a city prosecutor, it's not gonna work. If you have bad laws as no matter how good your law enforcement agencies are or your prosecutors are it's not going to work. And right now in some instances we don't have uh, particularly good laws because of our state legislature um, and their view of the world. Um, They're (coughs) sort of decimating Mm -hmm. and denigrating what was a pretty good system Mm -hmm. that achieved the lowest crime rates in 60 years. and then you have in in some instances uh, very poor people uh, uh, in charge uh, of enforcing the laws.
0: Well, I want to come back uh, in in just a minute because that's a fascinating dichotomy you made. You need two things, the good laws and you need the right people to enforce those laws. I I do want to come back and revisit that um, shortly. But you also said the component of public safety is also the perception. That the general public has of you know how safe they are, um, and an unscientific survey by myself talking to people that are my friends, people I run into, and I don't think I'm an outlier on this. It seems to be an overwhelming sense that we are not safe. Um, is that something you would agree or disagree with? You're not an outlier.
1: I think the public at large uh, does not feel safe, uh, and they I think more so now than ever calculate where their children are going to be, uh, their spouses, their relatives, and they think through, well, is that going to be safe for them? Um, There are many areas within Los Angeles County that historically have been perceived as being safe. Well, they aren't as safe as they used to be. There's a lot of home invasion robberies, a lot of um, uh, burglaries, high-end burglaries in some of the wealthier enclaves. Those areas uh, they may have perceived themselves as being safe, they aren't safe because I think the criminal element feels more emboldened, more confident um, and they are more aggressive nowadays. And then of course we we read about uh, the crimes we see of them uh, uh, on television uh, and uh, because of you know video capacity and the ever-present nature of video cameras. and uh, people on their cell phones and I think that adds an element of uh, fear for the average person because they see it and they go well, that can happen to me
0: well, you know we're sitting here in Los Angeles um, and this issue of uh, public safety and the uh, increasing perception of the public that they're no longer safe is is a national issue of course but the places that get the most attention are the big cities, in particular New York, Chicago, San Francisco, and L.A. Um, Is is the public safety um, more at risk in those particular cities than other parts of the United States, or is that just a misperception?
1: Well, first of all, there are many other cities where things are uh, out of control that I could name. There's probably uh, uh, several, uh, particularly where there are uh, district attorneys we call them Soros elected district attorneys. In those cities, uh, markedly uh, and in a very documented way, things are less safe. It could be Milwaukee, it could be St. Louis, uh, there are uh, Portland, a mess, Seattle's a mess. San Francisco is uh, not even a large city, it's only got 700,000 people, but it's sort of a mess across the board from uh very aggravated uh theft issues uh open air drug dealing uh open air drug use uh auto burglaries it seems to be almost uh, in a world of its own uh now los angeles people look at well the city well i look at los angeles as the county there's 4.2 million people in this city um, and this city is very diverse in terms of socioeconomic uh, factors, but remember there's 87 other cities in Los Angeles County and each one has their own, uh, let's say, challenges when it comes to crime. Uh, Lancaster, Palmdale up in the Antelope Valley, that's different than down in Long Beach. Uh, LA L.A. County is so diverse that you can get to look at the problems and the challenges in certain regions and in certain cities.
0: Well, it's fascinating because uh, the district attorney of Los Angeles is not the district attorney of only the city of Los Angeles, but is the district attorney of the county, which includes uh, not only the city of, but the eighty other uh, yeah. uh, cities plus the unincorporated. Yeah.
1: The way the way it works is, uh, ten of those cities have elected to have their own city prosecutor, and they range from the city of Los Angeles, which is very large, to medium-sized cities such as Burbank and and Torrance, Uh, Long Beach has their own city prosecutor, and then some smaller cities who have their own city prosecutor. But the other 78 cities rely upon the district attorney to enforce their misdemeanors and to prosecute their misdemeanors. Mm -hmm. And then you have large areas, uh, unincorporated within Los Angeles County, misdemeanors there are prosecuted by the district attorney. And of course, felonies throughout the entire county are the exclusive jurisdiction of the district attorney.
0: For uh, the people who are watching, um, a couple of terms that you mentioned, uh, which uh, come out of your um, Bible, uh, uh, law enforcement Bible, probably the day you were in law school, but misdemeanors and felonies. Uh, uh, Tell the viewers what the difference is between the two.
1: Well, historically, Crimes that could merit a state prison sentence were uh, deemed felonies within the California Penal Code. Crimes where the sentence was up to one year but not to exceed one year in the county jail uh, and where the punishment would occur in a county jail setting those were deemed misdemeanors. Now since uh, AB 109 one of the legislative disasters of our time has taken place as as a little bit of a hybrid there. Now, uh, only um, those uh, crimes that are serious or violent result in actual housing in a state prison setting, Mm -hmm. those felonies. Mm -hmm. All other felonies that are uh, not sex, not violent, not serious, they, when they're sentenced to custody by a Superior Court judge on a felony, they, uh, their incarceration is handled by the county, at the county level. This is a great departure uh, by mm, the state legislature, uh, led by Jerry Brown and others, mm-hmm. uh, to reduce the state prison population, which was an issue, uh, and to shift the burden of incarceration to the counties when it comes to a, a great number of uh, felonies, where judges have decided I am going to sentence this person to a state prison sentence. Okay, fine, mm-hmm. except that state prison sentence, by law, it must be served uh, in a county facility, which really burdens the counties, by the way.
0: And, and, and uh, AB 109 is a piece of legislation coming out of Sacramento, and I'm also gonna to talk to you about uh, uh, 47 and I believe 57. Oh, yeah,
1: it, that's the triumvirate.
0: That, that is the triumvirate, I believe. And, uh, but 109, uh, we're, uh, so now there's a distinction between, um, a rough distinction between, between violent felonies and nonviolent. and I su- suspect there's a lot of uh, disagreement over what constitutes violent.
1: Well, uh, they're, they're defined. Violent and serious felonies are defined by certain sections in the penal code. They are very well uh, defined. There's some overlap between those defined as violent felonies and some and those uh, uh, de- described and listed as serious felonies, but they're defined very specifically in the penal code. Mm-hmm. And then uh, everything else is not violent or not serious uh, just by a process of elimination.
0: So if, if we focus on uh, nonviolent felonies, the, the, the time can be served in a county jail as opposed to a prison. Uh, And I I sense from your comments that there's something lacking in a serving time in a county jail when it should be served in a state prison. That's the sense I'm getting. Um, Can can you explain a little bit about uh, what the differences are between a a state prison versus a county jail?
1: State prisons um, historically were designed for individuals who were committed to longer terms uh, in a facility, uh, an incarceration facility. County jails were designed really as a place for pretrial detainees, people awaiting trial, and then uh, individuals who have been sentenced to relatively short sentences at the county level. That essentially uh, is the uh, distinction
0: So someone with a nonviolent felony under AB 109 could uh, serve 10 to 15 or more years in a county jail as opposed to a prison?
1: Theoretically, that's possible. Mm -hmm. Um, I um, am aware of one particular case where a judge, following the law, sentenced to someone to 44 years, but it wasn't for a serious or a violent felony, and that person will have to do his 44 years, uh, or at least some portion thereof, in a county jail facility. County jails were not built for long term housing of criminals. They were built for short terms of punishment, uh, not to exceed one year,
0: right.
1: uh, and for pretrial detainees. There are hundreds and hundreds of individuals in our LA County jail system who are awaiting trial who are pretrial detainees because they can't make bail or they're denied bail. They are the murderers. They are the robbers. They are the serial rapists. They are the big-time uh, drug dealers. Uh, those are the people that are pretrial detainees uh, awaiting uh, their trials, and they're kept in, these, uh, in a county jail facility, which is for shorter term.
0: I know in a, an ideal world, uh, someone goes into the system, uh, whether it be prison or county jail, Um, and we ideally would like for them to be rehabilitated, uh, go out, live productive lives, uh, never commit another crime, never come back into the system. Um, Is there a difference in terms of this term recidivism uh, between those who serve their time in a county jail versus those who serve their time in a prison?
1: I I don't know if there's really a difference in recidivism uh, between those that come out of prison on parole uh, or those that come out of uh, kind of jail on parole because the parole rules have changed so much that it's hard to even compare uh, the current uh, right. uh, rate of recidivism to what it used to be, which used to be defined by do you run afoul of the law within three years of being released from the facility? I don't even think those statistics uh, exist nowadays. Hmm. Uh, the key though is. Uh, The purpose of the penal system uh, is stated in the penal code. It is to punish. And also, it is stated in California law, it is to rehabilitate. They -hmm. call it the Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. Mm -hmm. So it's the obligation of the state um, to provide. And this is for prisons. Yeah, for prison. Uh, For those uh, individuals who are committed to prison, who are going to eventually get out, uh, to provide some sort of uh, uh, pro- the programs that would allow for uh, them to be rehabilitated. Mm-hmm. So they can emerge from that period of their life and be contributing citizens. And that's uh, that's an obligation of the state that I don't think the state's been particularly good at right. historically. And they only started focusing, I think, on it as a matter of law uh, when Governor Schwarzenegger was in office. That's when they changed the name, they changed the focus. Right. Uh, from not just punishment, but to include rehabilitation.
0: Rehabilitation is a goal, whether it's been effective or not, as compared to the county jails, which is not charged with rehabilitation.
1: Uh, It's it's not a basic mission. And oftentimes a person is in a county jail for such a relatively short period of time uh, that uh, a a longer term program uh, uh, for rehabilitation, the opportunity just isn't there uh, the way it is in a state prison setting.
0: When I was uh, in law school and I took my criminal law and criminal procedure classes in my first year penance, that all law students do, uh, I remember that deterrence is also part of the criminal justice system. Uh, uh, any thoughts on whether the threat of serving prison time or county jail time as a deterrence is actually effective?
1: Oh, uh, you're totally right. Deterrence is the other main objective of the criminal justice system, is to deter an individual from repeating the crime by punishing that individual and to deter others from committing the crime by looking at the person who's been caught and being punished. So deterrence has always been a consistent uh, goal of any penal system. Now, uh, are people deterred? I think they are. Uh, They look at someone in their neighborhood going away to prison for an armed robbery, they may think, you know what, I'm, I'm going to do something else, I'm going to commit armed robberies uh, to make a living. I think there is, uh, and historically always has been, a deterrence uh, of individuals from committing crime, uh, if indeed, if indeed the system is capturing them in a timely manner after the crime, and punishing them appropriately for the crimes they've committed and their criminal history, so I, I do uh, think that it, it can be achieved, and it is achieved if if the laws are enforced, if people are arrested, if people are truly incarcerated for their crimes and their criminal history.
0: Uh, crime obviously has been around; uh, it seems forever uh, since there've been human beings. Uh, my sense, though, is that the rate of crime uh, over the past, I'm going to ask you this, a certain period of time has suddenly begun to grow exponentially or certainly at a higher rate than it once was. Is is that perception accurate?
1: Uh, It's accurate. Back in the uh, mid-70s, early 80s, uh, crime was at uh, an almost all-time high Uh, here in Los Angeles County, throughout California, pretty much throughout the United States of America. But back then states like California uh, responded with a high crime rate and uh, the uh, historic lack of appropriate punishment by uh, changing the law from the indeterminate sentence law to a determinate sentence law and sentences uh, over time increased in terms of time. State prisons were built over time to house this new influx. And we went from one of the highest crime rates in recent history. We're, we're talking in, about California? In the o- city, o- yeah, o- California o- and LA County. Highest crime rates, uh, is certainly in our lifetimes. Uh, uh, in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, until uh, the early 2000s, when the term of sentence law had been around uh, since 1977, Uh, Crime rates were at a 60-year low. They had not been that low since uh, the mid-1950s.
0: Now, what year are you talking about when they were so low?
1: Uh, Between 2000 and about 2012. Uh, And and then it kind of just started creeping back up. It crept back up because Mm AB-109. And then Prop 47. And then Prop 57. Uh, All these things sort of came together to... diminish society's efforts to deal with the criminal element and incarcerate them appropriately. Uh, and now, we're seeing uh, uh, an increase uh, in crime. We're going back to the high crime era of the late 70s and early 80s, and we're, we've abandoned the very low crime area uh, era uh, that existed uh, uh, basically 2000 to 2012 or so, that era, lowest crime rate in 60 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a, a really good period for the law abiding public and public safety.
0: Let, let me ask you to define another term uh, or terms that you just referred to. I don't want to l- let that go under the bridge without addressing it. You said determinate and indeterminate sentences. Yes. So, what's the difference between those two? Okay,
1: historically, California <clears throat> was a what they call it, an, an ISIL, an indeterminate sentence, law, state. Essentially someone would be committed to state prison, you probably heard the term on television, for the term prescribed by law, robbery, five to life, uh, attempted murder, uh, ten to life, but they would go in uh, and then based upon the, the their evaluation as to when they've been quote unquote rehabilitated, they would then be released. Oftentimes, uh, in a relatively short number of years, uh, the five to life sentence might be two years. Uh, a a second-degree murder uh, might be five, six, seven years. Uh, it was the sentences in the indeterminate sentence law were relatively low. And it's not because people were really being rehabilitated. It's just that the state prison had a capacity, and so they're being let out hmm. to to manage the people sentenced to the state prison within their existing facilities. And it was then that finally uh, great leaders like George Dick Magian, uh and then subsequently Pete Wilson went to work and built the prisons to accommodate people who were being sentenced under the new law which in, became effective in July 1977 which was the Determinant Sentence Law. And initially DSL as it was called Determinant Sentence Law had relatively Uh, short sentences because they had to reflect the average sentences for people that were have been committed under the indeterminate sentence law but once it was in place once that structure was in place the legislature and the people by way of initiative increased the sentences Mm -hmm. uh, and the potential time and the ways you could get more time. Uh, prior convictions, a use of uh, dangerous and deadly weapons, infliction of great bodily injury, excessive taking or damage. All of these enhancements were uh, added that, if proven, could add more time to a person's sentence based upon the nature of the crime or the criminal history of the criminal.
0: Mm. Um, let me ask you about prisons. Um, when's the last time we constructed a new prison in the state of California?
1: I don't think we've constructed a new uh, prison in California for probably, I'm gonna say 20 years. Uh, maybe, well, I think it was probably under uh, Governor Wilson. Um, and he and George D. Magian and the public at large who had, who had voted to build those prisons and fund those prisons, fund the construction of those prisons uh, did, did greatly ex- expand the prison capacity. But even that capacity got to the point where uh, there were challenges to whether or not it was cruel and inhuman, unconstitutional.
0: You're referring uh, to the, uh, uh, the, to the uh, federal court decision. Yeah, the federal Court think decision. about 2006, 2007, right. somewhere in that yeah, time frame. Yeah, and they said,
1: look, uh, it's really a little too crowded there, California. So uh, the, uh, all the crime rate was really low. Uh, it was a product of that era of incarceration. Uh, there had to be something to reduce the prison population. And there were different ideas proposed, some of them uh, actually pretty rational, uh, and some of them uh, reckless.
0: Hmm. Because um, I took a look at uh, that decision uh, a couple of days ago, and uh, I may be off a few thousand here or there, uh, but I believe that the prison population, not the jail, but the prison population in California, it was up to about 179, 180,000, somewhere in that you're range. you' totally,
1: You're right in the, right the button in terms of the,
0: so, the somewhere. Numbers, yeah. But, but yet, the prison capacity was built for something around 100 to 110,000. Right. And the federal court said, cruel and unusual, it's. Right.
1: They basically measured the actual number of people in prison no. with what they called uh, designed bed capacity. How many <laughs> beds do you have for the people that are in there in terms of normal incarceration in a cell called design bed capacity? And the uh, number of people in the state prisons vastly exceeded designed bed capacity leading to the Supreme Court's decision. Uh, and the response could have been, okay, let's figure out how we're going to adjust the sentences and let certain people out who are less risk, Mm -hmm. less violent, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, or the alternative, build other incarceration facilities, maybe some less expensive than some of the state prisons, uh, but for the non-violent, non-serious incarcerated person. But then California uh, took a wholly different approach than some of the more rational approaches to reducing the, the prison population.
0: Well, it, it seems to me, the reason I'm kind of pursuing you know, the, this line of questioning is that uh, the ra- if the rate of crime is increasing, that certainly is an important factor, but the rate of population in California traditionally has increased as well. So it seems that even if your crime rate is stable with more people every year, you're going to have an increase in crime. And if you're not building new prisons, the net result seems to be uh, an overcrowding of the prison system.
1: Okay. I, I've always uh, <laughs> said that the uh, crime rates depend upon whether or not people that should be in are out. And the object of the system <laughs> is to determine who should be in and for how long. Right. And that if you, if you do a good job of figuring out who the, the true recidivist, uh, violent, dangerous, uh, repetitive criminals are, and you incarcerate them, then your crime rates gonna go down, no matter what your population. Mm -hmm. You have to to make sure that the people who should be in are in. And we have clear examples. uh, I'd like to say almost daily, but maybe maybe that's an exaggeration. We have clear examples of um, innocent people being uh, victimized uh, because a person who should have been in was out. I'm talking about police officers who are murdered. You you look at the person who killed him. He should have been in uh, by law, but someone screwed up. Mm -hmm. Someone did not follow the law. Someone did not make sure that they got the appropriate sentence. Mm -hmm. Uh, Two officers in Monte went out to resolve uh, a dispute, um, essentially a domestic type dispute, and they were both killed, uh, murdered someone who was supposed to be in. Uh, Sergeant Boyer, Whittier police officer. Uh, he responds to a traffic accident uh, routine and the gang member who was from East LA who had killed his uncle a few hours earlier and stolen his car, decides he doesn't want to get arrested for stealing the car and killing his uncle, so he just kills Officer Boyer. You look at his history, he should have been in. He was in violation of parole. He should have been in. He was out and that's what happens people
0: that should be in are out and then who gets hurt law-abiding public well in 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 that example um, for uh, in that example so you have this gang member that has a record uh, had obviously been sentenced for prior crimes violated uh, his parole by committing further crimes uh, but yet he's out so then he commits murders Right. Uh, when he should be in uh, whose fault is that is that is that the well, some, judicial some, system well, sometimes is it's
1: uh, uh, it is the uh, parole authorities who have not detected someone sometimes it's the law in the case of Sergeant Boyer it was a b one o nine that had wiped out normal parole mm-hmm. and and substituted some kind of a weird uh they call it flash incarceration by the probation department and that failed. So in that case, it was a law that failed. And in other cases, it's the district attorney who is not achieving an appropriate sentence according to the law. The two Almonte police officers who were killed, that person should have been in state prison. It was easy, it was not complicated. He was charged with ex-con with a gun. He had prior strikes. He. Mandatorily should have been in prison. But George Gascon had a policy, oh, we don't file strikes. Therefore, you lose the power of putting him in prison. Mm -hmm. He gets a sweetheart deal. He's out in 20 days and he kills two cops. It's an easy thing to figure out when you look at why the person is where he is. Mm -hmm. Well, he was out and he should have been in. And that one there, George Gascon and his crazy policies eliminating a variety of enhancements he killed those two cops
0: effectively I do want to come back to the George Gascon question um, AB 109 though uh, I, I I think you just defined that as falling into the category of a not good law a bad law and that's one of them, several w- one of them uh, and 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 because of the defects in that particular law Uh, This uh, this gangbanger was out uh, and was able Had the opportunity to kill innocent folks Uh, What was it again about AB 109 that allowed him to fall through the cracks and and still commit these crimes?
1: AB 109 a greatly reduced um, uh, parole as a um, Way to deal with the criminal element who had been in prison and were out Hmm. it basically reduced the ranks of parole officers substantially and placed many of those burdens on the local uh, probation uh, departments, Mm. who were really not equipped to deal with that sort of criminal. And then they substituted a system of, when you violate parole, you go back to prison for up to a year, they substituted with a system called flash incarceration, which is if you violate the terms of your parole, Oh, we're going to call you in have you do 10 days and, and see if that uh, gets your attention. Well, <laughs> that's not very much time to be in. And secondly, for a hardened criminal, it's not much of a deterrence. And in that particular instance, he, under the old system, he would have been in violation of parole. He would have been back in state prison. But around that same time, the new system had come in, uh, uh, AB-109, and he was uh, out. Uh, when you should have been in.
0: <clears throat> well, coming back to uh, the, the trilogy, um, and, and I do want to ask you specifically about AB, uh, or not AB, but uh, 47 and 57, uh, in addition to AB 109, um, to me it seems that uh, these laws all seem to be some reaction uh, to dealing with the federal court decision that ordered a reduction of population of the prison we can come back and talk about that, whether that's an accurate observation or not. But let, let me come back to an even more basic question. Is well, What's your explanation of how we got in a situation where uh, we had a, a significant overpopulation of our prison capacity? How, how, how did we get into that oh. spot to lead to this federal court decision?
1: Okay, the question is, how do we get in a position where we had an overpopulation leading to a, a Supreme Court decision right. sort of saying reduce your population? Yes. It's a very good question. One, we did not build more prisons when we could have. Uh, That would have been an option. Mm -hmm. Uh, And two, the um, ways that uh, the state government chose to deal with the overpopulation was through AB 109 Mm -hmm. and then subsequently Prop 57. 47 is sort of a a different animal, Mm -hmm. but uh, was to basically reduce mm, the, uh, the, the terms, the amount of time someone was in and where they were in. That's how they dealt with it and right now the state prison population is so low, they're closing prisons, which they could use to (laughs) house a few of these guys. But, so that's, that's really, uh, uh, was a problem. They didn't, they didn't use other ways that were logical that they could have reduced the prison population uh, to accommodate the, the U.S. Supreme Court sort of saying you're overcrowded to the extent it violates the Eighth Amendment. They didn't go that way. They went AB 109 which uh, just sort of said hey we the state historically we've housed people in state prison when they're sentenced to state prison oh but we're going to change that. Now if a judge sentences someone to state prison uh, and it's a non-violent non-serious non-sex offense you the counties are going to have to take care of that state prison mm-hmm. uh, commitment at your local level. Well that certainly reduced the number of people in state prison and has had a, a dramatic effect over time to reduce the number of people in state prison. So, if, so a the superior court judge says I'm going to you to state prison for eight years, oh, it's non-violent, non-serious, non-sex, guess what? You get to go to the local county jail uh, for for your sentence. That's how the state got away from that historic responsibility.
0: There may be people watching um, that are asking themselves if, if the prison population in California is, is dropping to such a low level and we're actually closing prisons. Uh, but yet since 2012, we've had a, an explosion of crime, uh, which just those two statements in their own seem to be in tension with one another. Um, but I think you just gave an explanation. I want to make sure that, uh, we understand each other on that point. Um, why are we closing prisons and reducing prison population, but yet we have an explosive growth in crime? Is that, uh, due to the 109, uh, and other laws that California has well, passed? Well, it's,
1: it's, uh, I think the two major legal or laws are AB 109, shifting the housing responsibility for people sentenced to state prison for nonviolent, non-serious, non-sex offenses, having them housed in a county jail setting, that reduced the population significantly. Mm-hmm. Prop uh, 57 also uh, made individuals uh, eligible for, for parole much earlier than they would have been under the historic mm-hmm. Determinant Sentence Law. Mm-hmm. So, they only had to serve Uh, actually a relatively small amount of of any term, uh, no matter how long, before they're eligible for parole. So many of these people get paroled a lot earlier. Mm -hmm. Now, throw Prop 47 into it, uh, that eliminated, that sort of changed the whole configuration of the theft laws, but it also reduced uh, all hard drugs from being felonies to being misdemeanors.
0: The, the, w- possession. Yeah, uh, possession. Possession,
1: possession. Mm, right. uh, not, not sales, right. not possession for sale, but possession of hard drugs uh, are reduced to misdemeanors. So now you have um, either minimal or no enforcement of uh, the laws when it comes to possession, simple possession of drugs, which when you control the drug abusing criminal element, uh, by enforcing drug laws, you're also impacting burglaries, theft offenses, robberies, and other crimes. Mm-hmm. But that was all taken away uh, uh, by Prop 47, which was George Gascon's baby. He, he was the big author behind that. He was the only elected DA in California that pushed that. Mm-hmm. So that's his baby. and um, it, And you've seen, I'm sure you've seen, the incredible uh, explosion in um, uh, essentially uh, theft, retail theft, uh, including mobs going in and stealing uh, items, uh, individuals crashing into stores with their stolen cars and stealing items, uh, people's going in and clearing out the shelves of high-end beauty products and walking out. That's that's something new and novel, Uh, and it's frightening. Mm -hmm. If you're a customer uh, at Nordstrom's, uh, you don't want to see 30 or 40 thugs coming in and and taking things off the shelves.
0: And not being stopped.
1: Not not being stopped on the way out. And, uh, or or not being prosecuted effectively by the local prosecutor.
0: 47, Um, changed drug possession from felony to misdemeanor. Is that also where this uh, smash-and-grab originated? Uh, If you steal um, stuff that's $950 or less, it's now only a misdemeanor.
1: Prop 47 uh, eliminated as a felony, the crime of petty theft with a prior. It screwed up the definition of auto burglary, uh, which has certainly contributed to San Francisco's epidemic of auto burglary. Reduce the am- the amount that uh, had to be stolen in order for it to be a felony from um, uh, for, uh, from nine fi- from it increased the amount from 400 to 950, and the criminals are well aware of the amounts they can take, uh, and I think that the the general uh, sense of they're not really going to prosecute me anyway, so. I'm just the, the the criminals were emboldened, right. and you can see it on you can see it on, on videos all the time. One or two individuals walk in with their little shopping bag full full of stuff, walk out, uh, undeterred, uh, very rarely confronted by security, uh, certainly very rarely confronted by law enforcement. Well, well,
0: it seems like to me it it just has a pernicious effect on uh, people who want to be law-abiding citizens because, say, for example, if I Uh, My children are adults now, but if I had a young child with me and I was in a store and somebody grabbed um, stuff, stole it, and walked out, and they're not being stopped, um, and my child looked at me and said, Dad, um, why isn't he being stopped and arrested? Something tells me your child would be a
1: moral person who would be offended by the crime that they just observed having <laughs> i i i think they i think
0: they would but but that uh, a child today uh, may look to mom or dad and say uh, well if that person's not being stopped uh, right. why why shouldn't i do it yeah, or, well, yeah, who cares it, it about it the
1: law uh, sure. it certainly uh, undermines the uh, the goal of deterrence uh, of the criminal justice and, and, system and respect for the law if people aren't arrested and the respect for the law right. for starters which leads to them certain individuals being emboldened um, Uh, to to commit um, those crimes. And look at San Francisco. It's not just people being emboldened and uh, lack of deterrence. Up there you have retail establishments shutting their doors. Nordstrom's, sort of a high-end retail uh, outfit, they're they're shut down in San Francisco. They used to be on Union Square, one of the premier places for people to go shopping. They've shut down, I think Bloomingdale's shut down. Uh, the drugstores—they're shutting down right and left in San Francisco. Uh, they're in a um, because they can't afford it. Uh, it it gets, its its uh, such a loss. It's not worth being in business when you're losing money all the time and putting your employees at risk. So. They close their doors.
0: It's almost an indirect tax on law-abiding citizens, isn't it? So they're paying the penalty of not having access to these stores.
1: Yeah, and then then the the sales taxes that would have been generated by those stores, those are no longer in the public coffers to deal with some of the problems that are out there, especially in San Francisco, uh, with all of their problems, which are
0: myriad.